Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another in our Sundance series. I've been trying to talk about the movies that are coming out uh, a little bit as they're coming out without going too crazy. Uh, and I've been very happy to be joined in this endeavor by a succession of brilliant critics. And my latest guest is Jessica Kiang. She's been writing for Variety and The Playlist, so I'm doubly grateful for her taking time from filing reviews. Welcome, Jessica. Uh, hi, Nick. Thank you very much for having me back. I think last time we talked on the podcast was for a Best of 2020, which uh, happened to contain a, a, a spirited discussion, as I like to describe <laughs> it, about, about beginning. And now we're just catching up with what, what you've seen. One thing I just wanted to say is that I was glad to hear that you, you've opted out from some of the um, online uh, activities uh, just because I don't know if it was the same for you, but I just found that they made me feel the lack or absence involved in this festival a bit just reminded me of that absolutely and i think i think the, the things that even you know it's the it's the uncanny valley thing the things that get closest to to mimicking you know what we all miss so much are the ones where you really notice how chasmically far away they are to be honest it's not really something i do a lot of anyway at festivals i don't tend to do a lot of the organized events i mean i'll go to parties and things so i'm not a complete recluse but um so a lot of the sort of industry talks, I, I, I find myself very um, ambivalent about the whole Q&A thing. So I haven't even really watched any of those for the films I've been. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm basically I'm just I'm like the, the worst festival goer ever. I just watch the movies. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I found I found this time out especially hard because, I mean, we're all in this, you know, second or third lockdown now at the stage and we're all just sick and tired of it and so I didn't want to uh, complicate matters um, also because I have genuinely been extremely busy and I still have quite a few films to watch and still quite a few films to write about so um, it was kind of an easy decision just to opt out of, of those uh, extras. Yeah I mean certainly um, when you're filing um, reviews it, I'm, it, I, I'm, I'm always impressed with the discipline uh, required in turning things around. I, we had an interesting discussion on a previous episode about that process, and I'm very admiring of people who are able to do that well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I also, I think I used to be able to do it well. I'm not pretty sure. I'm not very sure I, I still do it well. I, I also just find my priorities have changed. I don't, I don't actually care so much anymore about being first. I would rather be able to take my time. But yes, I mean, I, I must listen back to that discussion about this whole practice because it is something that I really think that hopefully the experience of the pandemic will maybe make people think twice about. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about some of some of what you've been watching. What, what would you like to start with? I've actually just today finally got around to filing the review of my favorite film of the festival. So maybe we could start there. Oh, great. Yes, uh, which is Anna Katz's The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet, um, which is in the world uh, dramatic competition. Um, and uh, I think you've seen it too? Yes, I, I have. And, and I, <laughs> I don't know if I should try to, to describe it. I think I might just cowardly, be cowardly and just pass that over to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I'll, try, I'll do a very quick description. I mean, as should be a very quick description because it's a very quick film. It's 73 minutes long. So already even reading that on the uh, on the catalogue, I was like, well, that's an A plus, five stars, unmissable, 73 minutes. I love it. Um, 
But uh, I think actually, uh, I'm being flippant, but I think the 73-minute thing is actually really germane to many of the things that, that I really adore about this film. Um, it's, it's such a cleverly economic way of telling a story. And actually, it's not even that. It's actually quite a revolution. I found it quite a quietly revolutionary way of telling a story, a, a refocusing of attention in such a way. So basically what it is, is a um, 73-minute black and white uh, film by an Argentinian director called Anna Katz. It's her sixth film, I believe. Her last one you might have heard of is a film called Florianapolis Dream, which got quite some traction on the festival circuit, I think. Um, and it's also it's a really good film as well. But I think that this is um, kind of markedly different from other stuff that she has done and markedly different from pretty much everything I saw at this festival, certainly. Um, and it's uh, it stars her brother, Daniel, and it was shot over the course of several years. So actually she has five listed cinematographers, um, which I think is quite remarkable when you see it because it, it maintains such a lovely, a lovely, beautiful monochrome um, aesthetic throughout, but you wouldn't imagine that there were different people behind the camera at any point. It uh, basically tells the story, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing from the press notes here, this phrase, but um, of his, of this guy called Seba, who was played by Daniel Katz, um, of his midlife coming of age, which I actually thought was a very nice way of putting it. Um, mm. and, uh, and it does so in a series of what I've seen described elsewhere as vignettes, and I kind of want to push back against that because that makes it sound like there are these sort of you know, uh, polished, rounded, discrete scenes that are, you know, plucked at, uh, you know, very thought, thought precisely and, and um, uh, spaced very precisely. It's something about that word that, that gets my back up in, the, in this context. So it, it does, however, it sort of checks in with him um, in various different uh, stages of over the, over the course of probably a few years. And it just has this fantastic way of being both, both incredibly minute at times, like really small, beautifully observed little human moments. And then it also has one scene, which is the thing that everybody will probably know most about it, where a meteorite hits and there is a sort of a pandemic kind of response that people are going around in glass bubble helmets. So it, it sort of encompasses these vast disparities of scale in terms of what it does but it keeps everything so completely centered on how it affects this character, Seba, that it doesn't feel like it's, it's jerking around the place. It actually feels very smooth and very fluid. Um, and especially a lot of that comes from the characterization of, of Seba, just short for Sebastian himself. And he's a very unusual protagonist, I think. I can't really remember another protagonist I've seen recently who is so, uh, he's just got such a gentleness and he's, shot with such tenderness as well, I think. And I wonder if that's partly because obviously they're brother and sister and, and they're, they're close apparently. But there is a real, um, a real softness to his character and he's a, a, a listener. And that's one of the things that I wrote in my review. I think it's just very strange and really refreshing to have a, a film that basically that puts, the, puts the receiver where the loudspeaker normally is. So mm. that in all of those moments big things can be happening and, you know, they can be happening to him, but we're actually on him and not on the thing that happens. It's a really peculiar and I found incredibly beguiling film. Um, and the, the things that happen in those, you know, microscopic cuts that, that sometimes swallow entire years are all there. Uh, I don't think that she needed to do any more than 73 minutes, which I think is incredible because it basically gives you 
many, many years of this man's life in 72 minutes. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree uh, about this one. It's, it's, it's almost a magic trick. You know, I mean, I could sit down and try to analyze how it's able to do this uh, in, in this just very just was live kind of way such that you don't I mean to be honest I also didn't even figure out the time jumps were happening until mm -hmm. fairly far along in the movie um, which I guess maybe speaks to what you, you're describing which is that it keeps so you know focused on on his experience and his uh, yeah just sort of uh, you know quiet in interiority that, that he has mm -hmm. um, and and also the fact that it starts with the most ordinary mundane yeah. events yeah. which is just uh, his dog is barking too much and you can yeah. see this is ha he has happened this has happened so many times before and i mean it's it's a great understated piece of oh it's beautiful that that opening scene i i, I mean I, I i can tell you exactly the moment that i fell in love with this film and it's in that opening scene as well um mm. so even before i knew any of this this tiny whininess of it um the opening scene is the neighbor coming over to complain about um, his noisy dog. Firstly, the, the dog who we see in this scene is not being noisy at all. So there's already a kind of a thing of like, well, what is he complaining about? So there's already a slight disconnect there. Um, but there's this, the lovely thing that happens is that, I don't know if you noticed, that the neighbor, it's raining and the neighbor has an umbrella and Sebad doesn't have an umbrella. He goes out to his yard to, to talk to his neighbor. Um, and there's just this, fantastic moment and it's the the thing that I, I i adore in films especially films like this where there's just such a quality of observation about them that you can't help but recognize yourself in them in that moment but it's just a really brief expression almost uh, and, a, and a body language shift where seba has that thing which i'm sure you have experienced as well which is when you meet somebody and it's raining and they have an umbrella and you don't you don't ever know whether or not you should sit, stand under their umbrella so that you're like practically nose to nose and therefore too close to them. Or if you should stand <laughs> outside their umbrella so you could probably not see their eyes and you risk getting like dripped on by the edge of their umbrella or even getting poked in the eye. It's that, that sort of backwards and forwards thing. And it's such a relatable, tiny little human moment. And that was the point I was. I'm gonna. I'm gonna adore this film, no matter what happens from now on. Yeah, yeah. No, that that it is. It is wonderful. This that little bit bit of bit of business that they do, and yeah, and it just it just perfectly also just expresses like the tensions of of the the moment, you know. Yeah. Because um, because it becomes like an occasion for the neighbors just to feels like just sort of vent just generally about, about the just frustration of existence. Yes. Yes, and of course they're going to do that with Saber because he is such a good listener. I mean his. Even though he's being chastised, and even though he's very ap apologetic as well, he so he lets them talk. He and he he's, he responds to them in a really sympathetic manner. Um, and then obviously, and this is the thing that uh, I think is again so interesting because the very next scene we see is him uh, more or less getting fired from his job because he has brought been bringing the dog to work. And so because the dog wasn't actually making noise in that scene, that first scene, and then we see this second scene there's this wonderful um, amount of information that happens in that cut in between um, because that, that you can just then infer. So I suddenly realized then that that means in the first scene, there are some references made to a device that he's made to help the dog get fed on time and things. And obviously what they're actually complaining about is that the dog is loud when he's not there. And because we're always with him, that's why we never hear the dog being loud because the dog is always with him. The dog's happy when he's with him. So 
The dog was being loud when he was being left home alone when Seba was at work. So Seba starts to bring the dog to work, which is then why we get the scene of him not being able to bring the dog to work and, and being told that he has to, you know, not bring the dog to work. So just the fact that all of those interim things can be inferred by putting these two efficient, beautifully observed little scenes next to each other, I thought was really fantastic and really um just exciting. It was exciting to me to be so invited to engage in the, the creation of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 just the sense of capturing how life can proceed in, in that way, you know, from these small events, you know, maybe on another day, he might not, he might have put up a different uh, front when, when his employers are, are confronting him this way. Uh, maybe that was just one too many t- times or something like that so, but and then you know it, the kind of changes the, the course of things for, for for him uh and maybe it's for the better and and then yeah and then it goes on from there i agree with you about it not being quite vignettes because that does sound too polished and and has also just become like a shorthand for disconnected delicately observed a, i don't know a, a kind of a laziness to be honest that 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 i i infer from the word vignette vignette filmmaking um that I don't think that this this has at all. Yeah, and scenes here are also they serve purposes without feeling functional. Um, exactly. And so you've seen some of her previous films. I've only seen Florian Apple's Dream, and then I sort of read up on some of her previous ones as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 in a different register, and I think she herself would would say as much, um, especially because of this strange way of uh, you know having shot it over so long. I also think that that's such a, a remarkable and laudable thing to have been shooting for so long. She must have an absolute welter of footage and to be, have the discipline to be able to cut your film after five, filming for five years with five different cinematographers, to have the discipline to be able to cut it down to 73, to 73 minutes and to exclude so much. I mean, I just, I can't, I keep on coming back to how it, by com, by comparison, it just makes the standard way we expect stories to be told seems so profligate, seems so wasteful. Like we don't need all of those middle things. That lovely bit, which I'm, I'm sure you remember where it goes from him at his mother's wedding, where he's dancing very awkwardly on the lawn to some horrible reggae music. And it sort of locks eyes with a, an unsmiling woman who's dancing almost as awkwardly as he is on the other side of the lawn. <laughs> and it cuts from that, like literally from that, to his hand on a, a woman's heavily pregnant belly. And so, and it's her, it's the, the woman who was dancing at the wedding. So we get the, the knowledge that in between, again, in, in the space of that sliver of, of a cut, they have done all the things that would, another film would show us. They've had their awkward first date, they're fumbling for sex, they've you know had their argument, they've maybe moved in together and they've gotten pregnant and... So all of those things, but but you don't need any of it. You fill them all in because you understand his character so well and because you're provided with exactly the, the little moments that you need to be able to fill in all the rest for yourself. Right, yeah, it, it doesn't turn into, uh, yeah, whatever the midlife version of boyhood would be, guyhood, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's actually kind of, yeah, yeah, it's almost the opposite. And I, in my mind, uh, it, it goes together a bit with um, El Planeta, um, another just deceptively uh, slim film that... Which is also black and white, I think, isn't it? True, yes. Yeah, yeah. it is. I, yeah. I've noticed I've actually liked quite a few black and white films this year. I, I know you've just discussed passing already, but I like that as well, which is good because yeah. I think everybody knows that black and white equals art, right? <laughs> 
Well, this might be my uh, this might be a, my absurd segue, but one thing that was interesting to me about the Sparks documentary, yeah, um, <laughs> is is that you know for a band that you know in every way is is just a kind of riot of of, of color and sounds and variety, the interviews are resolutely shot in black and white. I really like them. Um, I, I think that there was an odd drollery to way to the way some of them are shot, or to way actually all of them are shot. Um, and it really contrasts with the with the really bright, bright popping um, archive footage that is used. I mean, what an amazing uh, archive research job was done on that as well. It's just such a welter, and the anim- little animations and things. So I, I, I thought I really appreciated that um, that flourish there of, of using the monochrome. I think it it kind of it also because those. I mean, they, apparently he interviewed more than eighty people. There's more than eighty, you know, individual people who have done there. So, so there's always going to be really short um, and like really sound bitey. And I think it was almost a way of kind of imbuing them with a, a certain dignity that you know maybe maybe a, a more overtly pop popish um, approach might not have had. You know, he didn't want to do you know star flashes and and. Uh, uh, <laughs> As text, well, actually, sometimes the text on screen is actually very funny as well. I do really love the bit where Jason Schwartzman is referred to as Talia Shire's son. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, and then, and then I guess when they have Beck, it just says "see above." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really good. Um, I, I mean, I, again, I I got to review this for Variety actually, and I uh, approached it with the same, I think, level of caution that, that many people probably did. It's two hours and 20 minutes long. And I, I knew who Sparks was. And I wouldn't have called myself a, a huge diehard fan or anything. But, you know, I would have known their, their sort of hit singles. And I, my brother was quite a big fan. So I sort of by osmosis had, had uh, uh, absorbed some of the Sparks stuff. And I do uh, always have really dug them and thought that they were, you know, that they were just cool. I mean, they are just cool. So I still wasn't hugely enthused about sitting through a two and a half hour long music biodoc, partly because music music docs tend not to be my favorite genre of documentary anyway. But then I was just so, um, I just enjoyed this so much. And, uh, you know, it may be two an hour and 20 minutes long. It felt like about half an hour to me. I could have gone with it longer with it. I just had an absolute blast with it. And I think it's a real... Um, a really uh, fine example of how to turn, from, from Edgar Wright's point of view, the director, uh, of how to turn, you know, real ride or die uh, fandom into, uh, translate translate that into a film without losing any of the enthusiasm, but also without becoming a hagiography, but also then again, not trying to do some sort of warts and all expose. There's actually very little gossip about them. Um, it's just, it feels like a, a really honest um, uh, uh, expression of appreciation. And if you have been appreciating Sparks for 50 years, there's plenty of material to talk about there without having to, to rely on any of the more dubious tricks of music documentaries past. Yeah, it's what what I was liking was just the way it shows a group that just kind of tenacious uh, in, in in sticking to experimentation uh, and in sticking through, uh, you know what what must have been often some lean times, and in in the face of all sorts of different successive waves of pop culture crashing over them, um, and just sort of holding fast uh, and 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 
churning out um, um, albums. And then, I, you know, just also the sweetness of, of the two brothers' yeah. relationship, that, that they have this fertile creative partnership. I, I don't know how possible that is a, a, anymore to at least to have access to the, you know, usual album production apparatus mm. and and stick to that kind of path. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it maybe happens on other avenues uh, of, of, of culture. Maybe, you know, at one point they say someone explains how we didn't have viral things then, but uh, they, they went viral. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and actually, I liked at the end of it that there is that they are still a mystery. I mean, that their their actual their relationship, which is, you know, um, outlined, and, and you can see how they interact. But they don't. There's not a sort of a huge amount of biographical detail that they go into. Um, so that to be able to make a two-hour, twenty-minute film that feels like about half an hour, and that actually doesn't destroy the mystique of the thing that you love so much i think is a, a real pretty amazing trick so uh so that is that's the sparks brothers documentary although as as they explained they they dropped the brothers uh, right away when it when it was originally part of their their name and uh true to the span and range of uh, a sundance documentary selection um you know there is also another documentary you mentioned called sabaya mm. um which I won't even try to segue because that would be absurd. But uh, that's one I, I I would love to hear about because I I, uh, I I still need to catch up with it. So Sabaya um, is a documentary directed by a man called Hogar Hirori, who um, is a, I think he's Iraqi born, but now lives in Sweden, um, a documentary director. Uh, he actually also, this is loosely speaking, sort of part of a, a, a trilogy of films. Um, and uh, not really a trilogy, but there's certainly that there, there's three films that can be bracketed together. His last film was a film called The Deminer, The D Minor, which was in um, uh, Idfa uh, a few years ago. Anyway, so uh, Sabaya um, is the, the word Sabaya can mean apparently a captive woman, or it can mean prisoner of war who is female, but it basically has come to mean sex slave and specifically the sex slaves, um, the women who are, are um, taken and abducted and then forced into enormous, air quotes, um, marriage uh, with members of ISIS or Daesh. These women um, taken and, basic, and are absolutely enslaved. They can be sold to other men. Many of them are. There's um, obviously ongoing systematic rape of them. There is, uh, they are beaten, they are um, humiliated in every way, and, tortured um and so uh the film however is actually about um a, an organization called the yazidi home center so the yazidi are a an ethnic minority a kurdish ethnic minority um, a religious minority as well within the kurdish population um and there are particularly uh, uh large numbers of them um insofar as there are large numbers of them anyway anywhere in the sinjar province of northern iraq um and five years ago when Daesh uh, invaded that area and took control of it. Um, they murdered the men and basically took uh, thousands of these women and kidnapped them. Um, and so when the um, Syrian Democratic Forces um, fairly recently uh, liberated that area or came in and, and uh, rid it of the Daesh influence, um, they rounded up all of the people from there um, and put them into this very notorious camp, a refugee camp called Al-Hol, which, um, which is just over the border in Syria. 
Um, and that uh, camp, so that, that contains, I think, 73,000 refugees, um, and in amongst them are many of these women, the, the Yazidi women. But in the, in the camp as well, um, there are still there are a huge number of smugglers and human traffickers and you know, diehard Daeshists. Um, so it's an incredibly dangerous place to be, and it's very difficult for them still to get women out of there. So this Yazidi home center, which has been set up by an, uh, just one of the most startlingly heroic and you know taciturn and sort of outwardly ordinary men I have seen as a subject of a documentary in quite some time, um, this guy called Mahmoud, who has uh, set up this thing called Yazidi Home Center, which is nearby. Um, it's his own home. He lives there with his wife and family. Um, and uh, he basically gets um, uh, information about the women from their families that back in Iraq who want to find them. And he goes in um, to the camp uh, with a gun stuck in his waistband and um, tries to find the women and deliver them back to their families eventually. But there's also, there's, there's so many other things that go on. There's so many, um, the, the women then, they almost have to have a kind of a decompression period, which they spend in the Yazidi home center with uh, Mahmoud's family. There's, some of those scenes are so amazing and so touching, even just the removal of their horrible black uh, robes and face coverings and everything, because the Yazidi, Yazidi women uh, do not have to cover their faces and don't, don't wear black. Um, so even the, his uh, Mahmoud's mother bringing those out um, at night into a pile and burning them, um, but it's just it's, so it's this incredible story of resilience and of of hope in you know one of possibly the most hopeless places on earth. Um, and it's really as a it, formally speaking uh, as a documentary, it's it's uh, exceptional I think as well. And one of the things that I think is actually quite ironic, I suppose, the last time we were talking, I think we were talking a little bit about how much I was responding to films to documentary films that somehow make us aware of their own construction or that certainly make us aware of the filmmaker's complicity with the subject or something like that. And this doesn't doesn't do this at all. I mean, this is one of one of those documentaries that it's almost miraculous the way he manages to um, excise himself from it. So to bring us very close to these stories um, and instead we just get this incredibly uh, deep and uh, empathetic understanding of this situation and um, a real uh, respect for the bravery, not just of Mahmoud going in there, but of the women who come out, who are, who are told, who are shown some of their stories. Um, and then also of these women who are his, he calls them his infiltrators. And these are women, often ex-Sabaya themselves, who volunteer to disguise themselves once more as Sabaya and to go back into the camp. Um, and I just, I can't really comprehend that, that level of, of courage. It sounds like it sh it shows just that a readjustment, and it's inconceivable what the experiences must be like. Absolutely, yeah. And there's one of there's one particular girl, and a lot of the times the sort of these nighttime missions they go on to go into the the, the camp and, and find this one specific girl. They often they're unsuccessful. Often they can't find them, um, but sometimes they do. One particular girl that they find is a girl called Layla, and you know they they bring her out and and in the car on the way back the car is followed and things and she's still obviously you know terrified and terrorized and and i there, there's part of me that is sort of i can't believe that these women are that they have to sort of get into another car with another bunch of guys they you know these are the good guys and they're rescuing them but, but to to them who have been so subjugated for so long and you know it's just such an, a, a difficult job of deprogramming and de-traumatizing that lies ahead 
And anyway, so when, when Leila gets back to the AZV Home Center, first of all, she has there's a little sort of interview segment that she does, and she basically announces her intention that, to commit suicide. And, and there's a huge um, incidence, apparently, of, of suicide amongst um, Sabaya and ex-Sabaya women, um, many, oftentimes because they basically believe the stuff that they've been told, and they believe that they are ruined, and they believe that their families won't ever want them back. But anyway, so yes, she, she says this, and, and then through exposure over time to Mahmoud's family, who are just um, the most delightful people. Um, he has a little boy who's just a, who's a pleasure. Uh, so, you know, we've seen her say that horrible thing, and then a few weeks or maybe a couple of months later, which she's still there, the camera catches her um, helping out, helping the mother out with some household task, and she's smiling. And just the fact that she's smiling, it's the first time we've seen her smile. Um, I'm getting a little bit uh, proclaimed, excuse me. Um, but it's, 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 uh, um, it seems like a, a miracle. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I mean, I guess this will be a huge kind of document in terms of the understanding that how war is not just on the, on the battlefield. Is, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 this is historically neglected or, 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 or just removed from histories of, of war and mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that also seems so important for that to follow those experiences. Sabaya made me think of, um, uh, just put, put in the back of my mind, something I had heard recently, and I really wish I could remember which particular cultural commentator had been um, discussing this, but there's a, a theory about rape and war um, which runs somewhat counter or somewhat inverts the, the kind of almost accepted wisdom that we have now about rape being used as an instrument of war, as a, as a weapon of war where she basically was talking um, about how this sort of theory is that rather than you know, war, uh, rape being a kind of a symptom, being sort of the thing that, that happens, an, an unfortunate uh, consequence of war, that the desire to subjugate women can actually, in some cases, be the cause for war. It's actually far more you know, basic and far more primary. And... It seems like a counterintuitive thing to suggest, um, but then if you think about it and when you watch something like this, when you kind of like become more invested in, in the, the, just the, the absolute soul-deep uh, misogyny that is and, and desire to create power for yourself through the subjugation specifically of women, um, it doesn't some, somehow, suddenly didn't seem quite so outrageous a suggestion. Uh, deep breath. <laughs> I don't know how to <laughs> continue. Cheery um, ending. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's uh, Sabaya. So I think that will bring us to our, our conclusion for this uh, episode. Jessica, thank you. And yeah, happy writing, happy viewing, and uh, happy festival recovery. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. You too. You too. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.